Alright! And Wednesday, yes, it is March 25th. Coming in at the 4 o'clock hour p.m. Eastern Standard Time, that is a new slot for Discussions of Truth. Thank you for tuning in. I am the host, Ian Hamilton Trottier, and what a show lined up for you today. That is four hours of Discussions of Truth coming your way. Coronavirus may be sparking a little bit of that, but regardless, what we started in 2020 because of demand are doubleheaders. And I believe two weeks ago, we had our first triple header. We are now doing a quadruple header Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard. You can find me right here at Winwood One Miami Radio. We formally broadcast on Winwood Radio itself. We retain a good working relationship, but we are now broadcasting on Winwood One. Dot com Miami Radio and a number of other platforms. Those include and are discussionsoftruth.com, freedomreserved.com, iantrachier.com, and finally at stopmassmedia.com because alternative news is the new news. If you haven't caught on, Mass media is completely brainwashing you into occupying space in your brain with really non-essential elements and news that's, again, totally meant to sidetrack and keep you preoccupied. Does political... Does the political landscape, in other words, in the United States, seem to you like a reality TV show? Good. I'm glad you're listening. We shall proceed. At the 2.15 mark, excuse me, at the 15 mark, at the 15 mark, we'll be receiving a very special guest. Okay? Uh, and always at that quarter mark, we receive the day's guest. So if you're listening to this in a post-broadcast platform, i.e. podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Radio, and you don't want to listen to me, fast forward to that quarter mark. That's when we receive our guest. And that is how it is every discussion of truth. Okay, so at the five o'clock hour, the normal slated hour, we're bringing on A. Ralph Epperson. He's an American author and historian. He's got a BA in business from the University of Arizona. He's dedicated over half a century. Ring a bell. If you caught the Jordan Maxwell episode, do so. You can see it and hear it on YouTube. That number of views is dramatically climbing. That is how we brought in 2020, was with Jordan Maxwell. Okay, He's 80 years old, and the knowledge that he has regarding the deep state and the mechanics that run the United States of America are extensive. Catch that episode. A. Ralph Epperson, 
is somewhat of a parallel in regards to intellect. He, again, for a half a century, has been dissecting the American economy and the political makeup. His findings are eye-opening. Historical events, quote, occur by design for reasons that are not generally made known to the people. Zero Hedge was banned by Twitter about a month ago for posting alternative concepts regarding the coronavirus outbreak. They were banned from Twitter. Does that speak to you? It should, because as far as I'm concerned, and I'm not a lawyer by any means, that's a violation of free speech. Okay, so A. Ralph Epperson joins us with what we refer to as the New World Order. He's been studying it now for about 50 years. Following that, we're bringing on a special guest. Okay, like I said, this is a four-hour program today. Makia Freeman will be joining us. Location, I'm not sure where he is, but he will be discussing DC Dirty Laundry and the seven New World Order agendas accompanying the coronavirus outbreak. That'll be on at the 6 o'clock hour. So the 5 o'clock hour, we've got A. Ralph Epperson, the 6 o'clock hour, again at that quarter mark of the hour, Makia Freeman will be joining us. And today, because of the demand regarding the coronavirus, will be joined by J.P. Lindstroth. We will be receiving a Lindstroth report today. Okay, But to open the show, in about eight minutes, we'll be bringing on, based in the UK, years before Dan Brown's research came to light in form of the Da Vinci Code, Oxford-educated British scholar Tobias Churton will be joining the program. He had long gained notoriety of his work within the Gnostic spirituality realm. His 1987 four-part drama documentary for Channel 4 UK television production, Gnostics, won the New York TV Festival Gold Award. Former Dutch theologian said about Tobias's work for Channel 4 that it would change the minds of millions. As of 2005, Tobias has lectured at Exeter University, where he is an honorary fellow and faculty member. He holds an MA in theology from Brazenose College at Oxford. He's born to the ancient Cheshire family in Sutton Coldfield, UK. Churton is considered Britain's leading scholar of Western esotericism. He's a filmmaker, he's a poet, he's a composer and author. He's known for acclaimed biographies on William Blake, Elias Ashmole, G.I. Gurdjieff, and... Alistair Crowley. Having authored over 20 books, Churton's current publication, Alistair Crowley in India, goes into the travels of Crowley into this mystical land. So, being rescheduled from a January date to today, in about five minutes, we'll be joined on Discussions of Truth by Tobias Churton. But before that, okay, I want to address a couple things. And these items are typically of importance with the program and regarding guests that we bring on. Uh, 
if you aren't aware, health around the world is in great jeopardy today. Yes, the coronavirus is exacerbating that. Uh, what do we have? About 18,000 deaths at the moment. Okay, this is totally in large part overdrawn by media, in my opinion. I'm not saying the coronavirus isn't dangerous. Yes, it is. People are dying. I think at about 500 deaths in the United States alone at the moment, Italy's being obliterated. Uh, the Chinese, there's reports that they have it under control. There's reports they don't have it under control. What is a fact is that the United States is not under control. But why would Zero Hedge be banned for posting an alternative look at how the outbreak happened? Was it biological warfare? Was it a lapse in security? An accidental outbreak? Uh, does it really come from a bat? I don't really know the virus that well, but I know that the world is in global lockdown. And that right there coincides with the New World Order, almost lock and key. So at about 18,000 deaths, put that in perspective, if you've ever caught the flu, which with a healthy immune system, Zika, what I started talking about in 2016 in Miami Beach, to a healthy immune system, Zika caused cold and flu-like symptoms. Well, there's a parallel with that in the coronavirus, isn't there? 290,000 to 650,000 deaths, so at an average 450,000, I guess, Deaths annually are caused by cold and flu, yet only 18,000 deaths so far in a four-month period from the coronavirus. Is this more of an economic show than it is a health show by the masters that control the economics of the United States? Well, I would argue certainly that yes, that is the case, uh, and I can get into that, but I'm not going to get into it at the moment. I'm going to shift gears because I want to get these three points out before we bring Tobias on because he's standing by. Autism is an epidemic. Now, whether you are for or against vaccines, certainly you should be for some vaccines, but are you for 70 vaccines being pumped into a newborn child? Uh, are you for mandatory vaccines? Okay. Autism, regardless, is an epidemic today. Uh, the first autism prevalence study, Treffert 1970, showed an autism rate of less than 1%. Out of 10,000 kids. That's 1970. A study from Treffert, 1970. That's T-R-E-F-F-E-R-T if you want to look it up. Today, the autism in the United States is 1 in 36 kids. That's a study in 2017 by Zablowski. That's Z-A-B-L-O-T-S-K-Y. So, we've experienced a 27,000% increase in in simply 50 years. Why is that? The garbage that's being fed to us in fast food, the pesticides that are being used in our agriculture, and yes, the chemicals and barium that are being emitted from NASA combating uh, global warming. That is a fact. That is a fact. Well, whether those whether whether the barium is causing autism, that's not a fact, but it is a fact that those are being emitted from the from the sky, otherwise known as chemtrails. All right, in California, we go to the uh, the coronavirus here. California Governor Gavin Newsom announced plans to use the quarantine right now to expand the deployment of wireless infrastructure in schools, opening the door to deploy 5G. How do you feel about that? Okay, who's pulling his string to get that happening? 
All right, who's pulling in? Atlanta Free, Freelands, uh, a, a, a former guest on the program. That's an excellent look at what's going on in the 5G realm. Uh, man is becoming machine. All right, that seems to be apparent. Man is becoming machine. Okay. Now, lastly, Julian Assange. Whether you whether you feel uh, how you feel uh, in regards to him or not, Kevin Shep, who was on the program just a few weeks ago, former CIA agent. I think he spent 17 years in the CIA, very high level. We've had other former John Kiriakou, other former CIA on the program. Uh, John Kiriakou, uh, 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 McCoy. Uh, my gosh. Uh, excuse my lame, let me uh, excuse my lapse in memory here. Uh, Ray, Ray McGovern, not not McCoy. Um, Al McCoy is a different uh, a different uh, guest, different topic. Ian, we no longer have any real sense of free media. The only hope now is people like you who can repair the damage and get people listening to people who know what they're talking about. That is Ray McGovern on this program. Direct quote: CIA analyst, nineteen sixty three to nineteen ninety, chaired the National Intelligence Estimates. Uh, and prepared the President's Daily Brief from 81 to 85. Uh, we've had other CIA on the program. Kevin Ship, Ship joined us a few weeks ago. And this is a recent tweet from Kevin. Julius Sange, whether you feel you like him or not, Julius Sange lawyers now announced that they will be applying to bail for bail at court this Wednesday. That'll be today. They argue that he is in imminent danger from coronavirus spreading through the prison population and should be released for his and other prisoners and staff safety. What is happening worldwide with the coronavirus? We're going to tackle that a little bit more with our next three guests, and that would be A. Ralph Epperson, uh, definitely with Makia Freeman, and finally J.P. Lindstroth. Uh, Counterpunch, one of, we're going to be going over one of the articles that he's written with uh, through Counterpunch. Uh, that'll be at the 7.15 mark, again, the 7 o'clock hour. Okay. This is Discussing Your Truth. I am Ian Hamilton Trache. Look for the book, Freedom Reserved, No More Lies, uh, being released next month. That's just a few weeks. The Atrine Day, you can pre-order right now on uh, Barnes & Noble uh, and at Amazon. Again, Trine Day release. Uh, that's the publisher. The book, again, is Freedom Reserved, No More Lies. Uh, and donate to the program. Get a, get a shirt. I recommend you get a shirt. Of course, they're soft, very comfortable. You enjoy wearing them to the supermarket or, or anytime you get let out of your quarantine uh, cell, excuse me, uh, house, uh, prism. Uh, pardon, pardon the lapse in, in, in vocabulary there. Uh, stopmassmedia.com. You can get those shirts at stopmassmedia.com. No more lies. Okay, now bringing on our first guest today. We're going to Skype him in here. So, uh, here we go. Tobias, good evening to you, sir. You're you're just in time. (laughs) For dinner? It could be, yes, or a drink (laughs) if you want one. <laughs> or is it tea time? Uh, I know. I know it's late for you. Tobias joins us from uh, from the UK. Uh, Tobias, I gave listeners a brief description of who you are. Uh, you are a uh, you're Oxford educated. You are uh, an author. Uh, why don't you give listeners a little bit more about who you are, Tobias? And 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 again, uh, thank you for accepting the invitation in January. We're pleased to have you now in March. Either way, Delight, delighted to be among you. 
Um, difficult to sum up uh, a career that's as long and uh, and and varied as mine. Uh, but I'm a full-time writer. I specialize in uh, writing about spiritual ideas through the ages and uh, many other things as well. Worked in television for a good many years and then became full-time writer. Um, beyond that, I can only say I'm, 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 I'm driven by a, a spiritual imperative to sort out fact from fantasy and uh, meaningful truth from uh, from uh, uh, <clears throat> well a fantasy frankly but um great great specialization in secret societies freemasonry rosicrucianism uh, the gnostic tradition and uh, many subjects which uh, appeal to uh, many people well tobias that's that's great i mean you're talking about identifying facts in kind of a mystic and gnostic realm which would be incredibly hard to do but you seem to be uh you seem to have that one thing i wanted to point out for listeners and i mentioned this again in the pre-show is that uh tobias you are from an ancient uh uk family the cheshire family of sutton coldfield tell us more about that oh well no my, my our family the churtons originally come from cheshire and we we probably came over in after william the conqueror uh, the norman uh-huh. uh, 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 took over england as you i'm sure you all know in 1066 yes and the, Ch- the churtons appear uh, about within about a hundred years of that um with land uh, just south of chester and there's a village of churton there and my family has been in cheshire and shropshire and now staffordshire for uh, the last um 900 years <laughs> incredible i think that's hard for americans to grasp uh certainly the, <laughs> their ancestry uh, if they've looked at it uh gives them a better grasp on it but uh, yeah having a family located in a specific geographic area of a country of origin uh that's obviously not possible for any american to identify with that so uh that's a really cool aspect of your uh, of your history of course now uh you mentioned uh william the conqueror and, and this is something that we've discussed on the program um and we've had on the program various uh, uh, people from the UK. In fact, last week, uh, last week we had uh, 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 we had on uh, Ronan uh, uh, he, he, uh, Ronan Palin. He's a, a professor at the University uh, or City College, uh, City University of London. Pardon me. Uh, he's an ec- economist, and his one of his recent books is uh, "The Hidden Nature of Finance Sabotage." Um, and uh, and he and he joined the program with his co-author Anastasia Nesvatilova, and and they discussed in brief. Uh, Ronan did this a little bit. He got he went into William the Conqueror because what he talked about, and this is a, certainly I don't think this has anything to do with Alistair Crowley, but 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 or or, or what you've studied, uh, but perhaps it does. But what he talked about was the banking system in London, the corporation, uh, the corporation of London, and, and the Bank of England, and that being a present. Mechanism mechanism before William the Conqueror and something that William the Conqueror actually was unable to conquer and so it's been its intact sovereign entity through the ages and that continues to this day in 2020 and what he talked about it was it being really a medieval form of banking and uh, really a Roman element that continues to exist do you have any comments on that Tobias uh, I, I, banks are places that I think I try to avoid most of the time but uh, <laughs> my 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 understanding was that the Bank of England was founded in the 17th century, which is uh, a good 600 years 
or so after William the Conqueror. So that's a, that's a, a news to me. Uh, the banking that took place in the Middle Ages, I think, was was very different. I, I had I'd understood that most of the the lenders of money in the uh, Middle Ages in England tended to be Lombard bankers who came from North Italy. Um, who originated terms like bankrupt. When they ran out of money, they would smash the bench they used to sit on. That's the origin of the word bankrupt. Um, so I don't think a sophisticated capitalizing uh, banking that has made the British Empire so successful in its best years um, really appears until the 17th century. So I'd, I'd be re- very interested in what evidence. <laughs> I don't think William the Conqueror and people of that type were very interested in lending money. I think they tended to force people to give them money. Uh, and when there was a parliament by the 14th century, they would get the House of Commons to vote them money or else. Um, but but until, until the English Revolution, 17th century, um, kings uh, didn't chat to bankers. They just forced them to do things. Yeah, but I may be I may be drawing a parallel where I shouldn't with the Bank of England Corporation of London. But uh, that is the information that... Uh, that that he conveyed. Uh, so let's let's get in, uh, Tobias. Let's get in a little bit to um, to Alistair Crowley. Um, and of course, um, tell us exactly what drives you, because uh, Al- Alistair Crowley in India, the secret influence of Eastern mysticism on magic and the occult, it certainly is, uh, as far as I know, your is it your recent publication? But you've but you've but you've released uh, prior publications regarding the life of Alistair Crowley. Uh, it, it, what is it about Alistair Crowley? Tell listeners a little bit about what they need to know about Alistair Crowley, and then we can get into um, the the India portion of what he found in India through his uh, through his adventures there. Yeah, Alistair Crowley, it's Crowley as in holy rather than Crowley as in foully. Uh, Alistair Crowley was the pen name of Edward Alexander Crowley, who was the son of a Plymouth Brethren, which is an exclusive, um, some would say extreme Protestant sect. Uh, His father was a preacher, uh, a wealthy man. He was brought up in a solidly upper middle class family in the late Victorian era. And he rebelled after his father died when he was 12 years old. He rebelled against this heavily Christianized upbringing and embraced um, girls, card games, fun. But also he took his intellect onto a totally different level. And he wanted to become a diplomat. He went to Cambridge University. And uh, he was all set for a diplomatic career. And he had a kind of revelation that whatever you could achieve as a diplomat, politician, whatever, was of of, of very limited value. And he came to see that uh, human life was, uh, human history was ultimately dictated by spiritual powers. And he came to believe this very strongly. Uh, But he was, look, what he made his life's work was to examine this idea scientifically. And this marks him out as very, very different from so many of the theosophical um, seekers after spiritual truth of the late Victorian and 20th century. And he he carved his own road, founded effectively his own religion, and um, Thelema, from the Greek Uh for will, and which was a magical religion, which of course is is still uh, and and growing, I think, uh, uh, quietly in the world today, uh, which has been attacked profound, almost since he started he was attacked by christian groups at the university of cambridge uh but he he then became notorious because his name was used by popular press people to attack existing existing movements uh, that they did not approve of and he has probably the worst reputation of any 
English intellectual in the entire history uh, of the Western world. My job has been to penetrate the myth of Crowley and reveal what I think is a tremendously exciting uh, spirit and intellect of, of great value to us today. So, so from someone who wanted to engage in politics and then uh, shifting into uh, developing his own religion, uh, and you're mentioning Thelema, um, uh, what what was the turning point for him that that uh, that said, "Hey, this is this is more spiritually uh, driven than than it is uh, uh, other other things." What, what what was it that that he discovered that kind of uh, opened that path for him? Well, it was a series of progressive uh, events in his life. Uh, one of the first was when he joined uh, a Masonic uh, para order to, to, it was founded by Grand Lodge British Freemasons, which is called the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was founded for, uh, for uh, you could say, advanced Masons who were interested in Rosicrucian uh, mythology, spirituality, and, and basically the occult, as it was considered in those days not black magic, but was considered white magic, um, hermetic magic. He joined that in 1898 when he was barely out of Cambridge and joined it at a time when it was embroiled in a sort of infra-struggle. W.B. Yeats, the poet, was a member at the time. There were a lot of, a lot of bright characters in it and a lot of eccentrics, uh, but he got very tired of it very quickly. We, he, he felt it wasn't really getting, getting to the sort of magical load, uh, mother load. Um, the next event which really made an impact was he was some um, he was he was he had an independent fortune in his early years and he was traveling the world he was in Cairo with his wife on their honeymoon and he had the most extraordinary series of experiences which led to in three days sitting in a in a room in the center of Cairo he wrote a thing which later became called the book of the law uh, or rather it was dictated to him he believed by a preternatural entity an angel of the most high uh, who was whose name was given as Iwas, and the whole thing, as he knew, sounded preposterous. He never, never doubted anyone who said this is absurd. But the book of the law is there; it can be read, and you can interpret it how you will. It's one of the most extraordinary pieces of writing in English, I think, that has ever been known, and still has huge enigmatic uh, characteristics. He himself tried to deny it for many years. I don't think he really wanted the idea of. He didn't want to be the start of a cult. and uh, But his, his life was buffeted, buffeted, buffeted to the extent that eventually he, he sort of accepted the role that the Book of the Law laid out for him, which was a new revelation that uh, the basic dispensation uh, which was governing the planet had changed in 1904 in April at the time of his writing. I mean, it's, it sounds utterly preposterous. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but the more you go into it, the more you re- he held this belief to the end of his days, he was the he was the um, intimate of many extraordinarily minded people. Uh, he knew Einstein. He knew Schrödinger. He was he was. This is this isn't a sort of do-it-yourself astrologer. Right. You make it up. This was a <laughs> highly 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 brilliant man. Um, you know, been compared to Winston Churchill. Uh, it's sort of been called the Churchill of the occult, and. Uh, he, his biggest following turned out to be before he died was in the United States. Uh huh. Well, that's 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 a good thing. Uh, I, I would I would I would assume. But you 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 talk about Cairo. So um, this is interesting uh, because on the back of the United States uh, uh, one dollar note, 
uh, is what many consider to be uh, the the pyramid there uh, in Giza. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Um, and so, so there is, uh, you know, maybe Crow- Crowley was was on to some type of um, a, a, a pathway that r- resonates through uh, various civ- civilizations historically in regards to uh, this spiritual um, enlightening. Uh, did he visit the uh, assuming assuming that this uh, this this uh, this this pyramid on the back of the U.S. Uh, one dollar note um, it, it, it does it does come from 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 uh, Egypt um, and we do know there's other pyramids around the uh, around the world uh, but was he able to visit the uh, the Giza pyramids and what was his uh, thought regard regarding those uh, those buildings. Yeah, well, in 1903, um, this was about four four months or so, five five months before his what he calls the Cairo Revelation of April 1904. He'd been shown into the king's chamber of of the the Great Pyramid, and he did an invocation of the sylphs, which he'd been taught the words for this invocation uh, when he was in the Golden Dawn, and he said that the 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 room kept he was in with his his wife and that the room kept a kind of blue bluish glow uh, uh for most of the night before it faded and uh, very much impressed his wife as to the magical powers that he he, he had I, he didn't go a bundle on the whole pyramidology you get today and the amazing amount of measuring and symbolism that people people attach the same kind of symbolic importance to the Great Pyramid as they used to to the Temple of Solomon, Isaac Newton. Um, all of these great, great uh, monuments of the past attract this, this tremendous level of speculation. Crowley wasn't terribly bothered about the speculation, but he was fascinated as a romantic by being in the pyramid at that time. Um, Crowley was very much a sort of down-to-earth practical bloke in one way, which is quite extraordinary given the depth of his mysticism um he's not a man that's easy to describe and when people tr- you, you can write him off but you haven't written anything off you you've simply uh thrown something in the image against the image uh the, the more i've the reason i've written several books on Crowley is i've always found discovering more aspects uh to him and to his life which are worth our interest uh today why should they be of interest? Because we're going through this incredible change, and we have been since the end of the Victorian era. The old world that our great-great-great-grandparents knew has been ripped up entirely, technologically, uh, morally, politically. We are still going through a most extraordinary uh, maelstrom. And while we had a sort of brief break in the 1950s when normal became heaven after the horrors of the war second world war world war ii uh we're now we're back on the roller coaster again with a, a great, all these issues about what is man why is he here what's our relationship with nature um all of that is thrown into the air again and uh, as we are now facing a new kind of apocalyptic scenario uh, somebody like Crowley, who was not afraid of confronting the facts of change, becomes terribly interesting. I think. Yeah, I think you've I think you've got a nice uh, uh, example, if you will, uh, to study. Um, I don't, one of the thoughts that comes to my mind is uh, 
uh, in in modern media, we've uh, we've well, the culture today has uh, gravitated to this uh, 007 uh, uh, figure from uh, Ian Fleming, uh, and uh, that would be, uh, as far as I know, John D. Um, it, it, it does what John D. Uh, did for the 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 British Crown uh, with his 007 for your eyes only. Um, was was he's more espionage, but but there's also a, a gnostic realm to what he did. Is is my my thought? Is there are there any parallels between uh, the two uh, great figures in in, in British uh, history? That would be John Dee and Alistair Crowley. Yes, I think that there's a, a remarkable symbiosis there. Um, John Dee was of great interest to Crowley, and Crowley explored. Uh, these angel angel summoning system which came to him through uh, his scryer Edward Kelly and uh, Crowley probably did more experimental work on that than practically anybody and came up with a mighty tome which you can still buy called The Vision and the Voice um, where D is interesting is because well for many reasons but one basically D had explored renaissance learning come to its limits and then wanted to go further he wanted to eventually find out what was known beyond the human dimension altogether and that's why he got involved in this extraordinary uh, step into summoning angels uh, for guidance now D did work for the British government or rather the British government under Elizabeth I time of the founding of Virginia um, was very interested in what he was doing and sent people to uh, when he was in Europe sent sent them to follow what he was doing D would have been could have been uh, an agent of the British Crown at that time um, he was certainly privy to to many of the leading figures of, of the Elizabethan court Crowley would like to have had a role very much like mm. that I think he tried very hard to get the government to to take him on as it, well, practically anything, uh, advisor, guide, magus, uh, spy. He did, he did quite a lot of attempted espionage uh, for the British uh, uh, cause and the Allied cause in World War I, uh, which, much of which was grossly misunderstood. He tried to serve the government again in World War II. He certainly was helping MI5 um, with information about uh, communist subversion in, in England in World War II, um, but I think ultimately uh, a secular, well it wasn't a secular state of course in the 1580s when D was most active, um, but in the 20th century it's just simply incredible, very hard for a modern state to employ uh, a figure who is so, who's so tuned into non-political categories and who's uh, fundamental interests, a spirit, a, a almost wholly spiritual. A state uh, can't afford, as it were, to, to listen to that kind of guidance in the, in the modern world. But there are always people within the state system who are interested in the, high, the highest kind of intelligence. And Crowley was certainly uh, fit that bill, and he was a great interest to some of the spy masters of, of uh, Great Britain in the, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s including Maxwell Knight and um, and uh, Colonel uh, um, uh, Carter. And, uh, it, yep. But he never had the role that he he deserved. I think one of the sad things about Crowley was he became a martyr, really, 
his enemies were very great and uh, mm. he was opposed on, on, on many sides. And it's not surprising because his entire public stance uh, was one of defiance of convention. And he's a, he was, to start with, a decadent poet. He belongs in the 1890s in some way. And in other ways, I think he belongs in the 2090s. I don't think his mm. era has quite come. He's most, again, extraordinary character. Very difficult to express to you in a, a brief interview. Yeah, uh, and, and certainly uh, great musicians like the Beatles, uh, Sgt. Pepper's uh, Led Zeppelin, I believe. Some of these great uh, musicians have uh, credited, haven't they, uh, Crowley's work uh, in, to inspire them. Is, is that accurate? Oh, there's no doubt of that. I mean, Mick Jagger, John Lennon, David Bowie, Jimmy Page, they've all, all taken they've all taken some idea of Crowley. It may not be an accurate idea in some of the cases, uh, but I remember John Lennon just before the, the terrible murder mm. in 1980 was interviewed by Newsweek, and he summed up his basic stance as being, do what thou wilt, but don't hurt anybody. Ah. Now, that is a, an obvious paraphrase of Crowley's do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law and love is the law love under will so Lennon had certainly got the message but he, he didn't he, he, he did it he put it over subtly so Crowley appears on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper album uh, Jimmy Page put do what thou wilt on the lead out um, groove of Led Zeppelin 3 the one with Stairway to Heaven and he's still a, uh, the owner of probably the largest collection of Alistair Crowley's paintings in the world. David Bowie mentions Crowley and the Golden Dawn in several of his early songs. I think he, we did get in touch with David Bowie some years ago uh, to get a comment on the biography of Crowley I wrote and, and he's, he's sort of, it's a bit sheepish, he, he you know, wished it well but he, he's, he said his Crowley interest was a bit in the past. Huh. I also contacted Peter Brook, the great theatre director, and you get this they, they, they like Crowley, but they don't want to be known to like him too much because the public images, the public image of Crowley is still, regardless of all the, yeah. all the scholarship I brought to it, doesn't matter what I say, the newspapers still want Crowley, devil-worshipping, drug-taking, sex-mad, uh, heroin addict. That's the Crowley they want. Um, it's, it, he's, it, it's, it's tragic, but it's true. And I... I, I it's lessened a bit, um, but it's a, he, he's a very. I, I took I took the Crowley case on in a way a bit like the, a lawyer who likes a challenge, uh, because I recognise that the world constituted as it is is never going to give this guy a chance. Doesn't matter what I say, but even so, somebody should say you're getting it wrong. Yeah, That's, well. Well said, uh, Tobias. Let's let's get into that before because I want to spend uh, I want to spend some time in India with uh, with Crowley. But um, let's identify uh, some of his adversaries. Certainly, he's uh, he's pushing uh, the the norm. He's bringing in an alternative. Uh, uh, he's uh, he's kind of pushing out, uh, wanting to push out the establishment in a sense. Um, but he must have been, uh, you know, he's he started this religion. He's got followers. So, so what he's uh, what he's learning and researching, 
uh, is obviously becoming somewhat of a threat because he's creating uh, he's creating uh, oppose, uh, opposing forces in humanity uh, in that sense. Uh, he's, he's got, if you will, enemies, uh, to use that perhaps a too strong of a term. Um, but but he's, he, he's, he's, he's doing so um, uh, in, a, in a sense that is causing a disturbance. Um, so, so who, who is it? What, what are the, what are the sectors of society, if you will, that are becoming, uh, opposed to what he's doing? Uh, are we able to identify some of those? It's, it's, that is a very difficult task because I don't think Crowley was opposed by, um, whole sectors of society at all. It, it tended to be, uh, his original, okay, the first time we get him being actively opposed is the, University of Cambridge Christian Union. Uh-huh, you right. know you have it. You know you have in these universities groups of fervent evangelical Christians who make it their effort to bring people to Jesus, um, and it was just the same in, in the 1890s as yeah. you probably find in universities today. Uh, they didn't like the fact that he was advocate. He 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 joined what was called the Pan Society. This were today's sort of greens in a way uh, a kind of romantic um, vision of nature and trying to uh, talk about the classical gods Pan, uh, the god of all of nature and so yeah. on uh, that was they regard, well that was obviously paganism so he was identified as a sort of pagan who was trying to undermine the uh-huh. good Christian education so that was the first opposition I think after that it became rumoured that Crowley was bisexual. He occasionally had relationships, uh, strong relationships with men, though his, most of his relationships are with women. Um, and he was certainly a proto-feminist, in, in, as, as not as perhaps would be understood today, but certainly would have been understood in 1900. Um, I think when, when the sexuality aspect of Crowley got out, uh-huh. he, became, he became prey to blackmail, because, of course, in those days... It was a capital, uh, not a capital crime. It was you could be sent to prison for years and hard labour, as had happened to Oscar Wilde, if you if you wow. could be proved if you'd had homosexual acts, uh, and various uh, several editors of low magazines tried to blackmail Crowley, and he always refused to be blackmailed, so they would print what they liked about him. Um, his his, I suppose you could say that his enemy would be the right wing Christian establishment. Yeah. Yeah, uh, certainly. But actually, uh, the the serious papers, the r- big newspapers, the Times, etc., never never attacked Crowley at all. It was always what you call the yellow press. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, in America, that would be the Hearst Press. In uh- the- <laughs> <laughs> you know. Tobias, well said. Uh, well said, Tobias. Uh, okay, do you have? Sorry, do you have a few? Uh, uh, you have something else? Well, I think he had a lot of opposition from the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because he, because he's basically Gnostic, you know. And, yeah. And the from the eighteen nineties, uh, the Vatican was very concerned that there was there had in the eighteen nineties appeared a new Gnostic Church led by Jules Duanel in Paris, and they were they were very frightened that there, there was going to be this outbreak of what they would regard as heresy. So Crowley, Crowley uh, touches on that as well. He wrote a Gnostic Mass. Um, when he was in, in Russia in 1913. Um, he has opposition from the Catholic Church. He had opposition from Theosophy, the Theosophical Society, 
um, because he opposed Krishnamurti, whom Annie Besant, the leader of the Theosophical Society after Blavatsky died uh, uh -huh. in the uh -huh. 1890s, they they tried to undermine him and said he's a dangerous uh, dangerous character and he he's he's too iconoclastic and he's probably satanic and um, so he got opposition there as well. But if you trace the the intelligentsia and their relationship to Crowley, some of them were frightened of him. Definitely, he had an amazingly powerful image, um, which put some people off and attracted others. Uh, but it. There, there, there were I think a lot of his opposition was just certain individuals who had great power in the state who just didn't want this man's conception of message imagery to affect anybody yeah and I, th I think he was singled out quite early on as being somebody you know Oscar Wilde times 10 <laughs> yeah 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 what part of Russia had he written that uh, that mass? Well, in 1913, very interesting, he went to Moscow. Um, why did he go? Very interesting. It's very, very unclear why he went. He'd, he'd originally gone to St. Petersburg in the 1890s uh, to learn Russian, to train to be a diplomat. But he was there in 1913, mo mostly. Uh, oh, he took over. He took a, an English band, I suppose today you'd say, like a rock band, a group of seven girls called the uh, the Ragged Ragtime Girls, and he put them on as their manager in, in <laughs> Moscow, and uh, at, at the famous place called the Aquarium. And, and, and they, they, they strutted their stuff, and he spent his time uh, getting to know people in various cities and, and hanging out with the, con uh, the British consulate and uh, getting to know the leading diplomats in Moscow. Uh, fascinating uh, little tour in 1930. And I think he, you know, Skriabin was aware of him, the, the, the Russian, uh, the Russian um, artistic movement that died sadly with the Russian Revolution. Um, they were aware of this extraordinary Englishman, who, this Magus who'd come along. Ken Russell, the movie director, actually wrote a play having Skriabin and Crowley together in St. Basil's Cathedral uh, sacrificing goats but that's more Ken Russell's imagination than, than Crowley's <laughs> but uh, it was a, I mean it, it's, a, it's a delight to go back into that pre-First World War world Crowley was so much part of uh, a period that we've so long forgotten when, when uh, in many many houses in, in America and England they'd be, you know families would get together and have seances I mean, this is long gone now, but I remember talking to my grandmother about this. And, you know, before the First World War, uh, the, the, there was a kind of popular occultism. And uh, in, that, in that world, you had competing, competing figures. You had uh, Vivekananda, the uh, Indian guru, and a lot of people followed him. You had the Theosophical Society. You had... Freemasonry, all these things were competing for people's private spiritual space. Yeah. And um, Crowley was sort of part of that, but he's, he's, he's kind of very much more modern. You, you get that when you read Crowley's original writings, you get this feeling that he was well in touch with a future time. And I, he makes probably more sense now in some ways, even though the culture's changed so much. That's, that's remarkable. Uh, and, and, and he seems like a very peaceful. Uh, fellow that wasn't inciting any violence. He was simply um, kind of what you're alluding to, going against that 
the, the overall Christian norm at the time through through the Vatican and whatnot, maybe elements uh, left throughout Europe, and that was kind of a threat, uh, perhaps. Um, let's get into uh, Tobias. Let's get into India. What what drew uh, Crowley to India? What, what practices of Hinduism? What, what, what was it? And then what what did he get out of India? Well, it's it, his his engagement with India, which is the new book's main topic. Uh, well, I wanted, I, I anyway wanted to write a book which explained to everyone today what we mean when we talk about Indian philosophy, Vedanta, and uh, and and Buddhism, and these things that people tend to confuse and mix up, um, and the and the main schools of Indian philosophy. So I, I, in one way, Crowley was my excuse to write about Indian religion and philosophy. But the more I got into it, Crowley's own engagement with India was profound and fascinating. He came to India because his best friend in London, who was a very poor chap, an electrical, electrical chemist called Alan Bennett, who was one of the most brilliant young men of the Golden Dawn organization. He got tired of magic. Uh, he joined, he trained Crowley in magic. They'd done uh, all sorts of experiments, uh, invocations, evocations at Crowley's flat. And um, Bennett, was terribly ill with asthma and Crowley arranged money to be provided so he could go to Ceylon which was thought to be much better for asthmatics and Bennett wanted to go because his heart's desire was to study Buddhism and to become a Buddhist and he'd he'd, he'd read uh, classics of Buddhism and he thought this is better than magic magic's piddling around on the on the bottom of the mountain and he wanted to go to the peak Bennett off he went to India. Crowley went mountaineering in Mexico, went to America, and then in 1901 he set sail from San Francisco to go and see his old friend, Alan Bennett, who was lecturing at the Theosophical Lodge in Colombo in Ceylon, uh, modern Sri Lanka. And uh, Bennett trained him in Raj Yoga, and Crowley made great advances in the company of Bennett uh, in Ceylon in 1901. And became effectively a Buddhist and thought he was a Buddhist and was very seriously interested in leading a, a, a sort of conversion group, a, a Buddhist Sangha to come to Britain and, and announce the new Buddhist era. Um, I, I, I'll give you an example. He sent out Christmas cards in Christmas 1904 saying, wishing you a speedy termination of existence. <laughs> <laughs> that was his take on Buddhism. And, and so he, 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 he studied he studied the high trances of uh, of the um, um, Theravada Buddhism in Ceylon, and then he went over to mainland India and went to Calcutta and then across India, exploring everything he, he could find before um, attempting the first the world's first ever attempt on K2, the world's second highest wow. mountain, um, which he was he was. Uh, a leader of that expedition with Oscar Eckenstein, his friend, which was a pioneering expedition. Oscar Eckenstein, his best mate in mountaineering, invented the crampon, without which people wouldn't. My do goodness, it yeah. yeah. And this was 1902, and it was an incredible attempt. They had no oxygen, it was all done. Um, they went up there in clothes today you would hardly think suitable for a weekend in the Adirondacks, you know, and they went up K2 in this stuff. And, and it, most incredible. And Crowley was suffering from malaria, and he's at the highest point anyone's ever spent on any mountain. Oh, and wow. he's, writing a, he's writing a play 
on the mountain in howling winds, virtually frozen to death uh, at the highest point any man's ever been. Quite absolutely extraordinary guy we're talking about here. And he then, in 1905, he went back to India and took on Kanchenjunga on the Nepal-Sikkimese uh, uh, border. And uh, that wasn't climbed, in fact, until the 1950s. So again, 1905, well ahead of his time. And he led that expedition. It ended in tragedy. There were several people killed. Uh, but still an incredible achievement. And I managed to get uh, some fabulous photographs of these very early pioneering uh, mountaineering experience. This idea, you know, you, you are a mountaineer, you're also a poet, you're also a mystic. This is what attracted me to Crowley in the first place, because I was interested in all those three things, mountaineering, poetry, and, and mysticism. Uh, so that's how my original interest started when I was at Oxford studying theology, and I joined the, the Mountaineering Society. And that's that's incredible. Heard, that's where I first heard about him. But he's really pushing the physical limits as he's pushing spiritual boundaries, in a sense. Uh, yes. yep. yeah. he's, his whole system is the bringing together of the physical and the spiritual. Uh-huh. That's, one, that's one of the distinctions of it. Uh, uh, Tobias, I want listeners to hear uh, briefly your, and if there is any overlapping, what's... Uh, uh, what what is the Da Vinci Code in 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 your and this is just totally off subject here. What what's, what are your thoughts on the Da Vinci Code? It's been uh, it's been a number of years since that was uh, a mainstream item of interest. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, the Da Vinci Code is one of these splashes that you get every so often that introduce a huge audience who'd never really thought much about it. Uh, into the whole mystical, magical world. And, and, and Dan Brown has achieved that um, with that book, even though the subject matter of the book, of course, was well explored before by Michael Bajant and Richard Lee. I knew Michael Bajant very well, and, uh, and Lynn Picknett and, and Clive Prince's books. But he took that and, and created uh, a story out of it. The essence of things like the Da Vinci Code goes back to the what I call occult Paris of the 1890s. It was Josephine Pelladin who said that Da Vinci was a grand master of uh, the occult inheritance of the, of, the, of the secret doctrine through history. Um, he didn't mean by that that it was an order of Zion or anything like that. He, he, Pelladin, who was the great um, occult uh, showman of the early 1890s in Paris, uh, was trying to create a new artistic movement which brought spirituality into art and art into spirituality. And he wanted to lead the religion back to this Gnostic experience of, of the inner revelation that comes to people who strive within and don't simply accept what is fed from without. And Peladan invented this whole thing of Da Vinci. So the, the real, if you want to know what the true Da Vinci code is, read Occult Paris, which is a book I wrote some years ago to explain how all this came about. Um, people took the novel as if it was fact, because he said it was based on facts. Well, yes, I could write a, a book based on facts, but it wouldn't necessarily be fact. <laughs> you, can, you can base a lot of fiction on fact, can't you? And uh, I mean, we wouldn't have a movie industry if that wasn't the case. <laughs> Correct. Um, so, uh, or, or indeed a political system, frankly. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the Da Vinci Code was one of those gateway books that allows 
people to come into this marvelous field of what I, we call Western esotericism, which is the inner meaning of, of spiritual beliefs. Um, and that is a field which is growing in, in, in terms of its scholarship and, and discipline. And I've been trying to pioneer that, that process as well. These subjects should come under very serious purview. It shouldn't just be left to popular popularizations. Otherwise, you end up with every, a guru on every street corner with the answer uh, to his own to his own insanity. Um, you know, we don't need bad gurus. What we want to know is what 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 do all these things mean? Right. And that's what my my work's all been about is to clarify the field. I liked how you thread in. Uh... Uh, uh, the political system. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, that was a nice. Uh, that was a nice thread you you made there, uh, Tobias. Uh, in in winding down here, um, please uh, let listeners know where they can find uh, find your books. I'd imagine uh, most uh, 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 retailers. Uh, do you have a website? Uh, and, and share. Uh, give listeners a, a place they can go to purchase your work and find out more about what you do and uh and share with us uh share with us share with us some some closing thoughts uh if you would oh, I'll, I'll try um <laughs> i have a web, i have a website tobiaschurton.com tobiaschurton c-h-u-r-t-o-n tobiaschurton.com and all the books and all all my works and 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 biography and all that stuff is all listed on there. Uh, if you go to Amazon and look up Tobias Churton, you'll find all the books at least, uh, and that, that that you know no problem getting them through Amazon. And I think all the good bookshops and Barnes and Noble and uh, in the United States uh, stock my books. Uh, recently, I have had a wonderful relationship with Inner Traditions International of Vermont. And uh, they've published a lot of my books. I'm very, very lucky, and they've done a fantastic job. So Inner Traditions International um, is a very good... They have their own website, catalogues, and all that stuff. Um, so, and now, as for parting thoughts, uh, I would say that we are faced today <laughs> with some of the most confusing and confused messages that have ever been put in large numbers to human beings. And... I would say follow your profoundest intuition, find some space to think about what might be happening and listen a bit less to the media. And I'm not talking about fake news because all news to somebody is fake news, you know. <laughs> fake news is the news you don't want to hear sometimes. And uh, the true news is what's happening to you and how you feel and uh, what's going on in your life that's the true news and um, you ask your own questions and follow your own path well said thank you Tobias some some great words ladies and gentlemen Tobias Churton uh, Tobias thanks for the reschedule and we look forward to reaching back out to you, inviting you back on the program that'd be a great pleasure Ian thank you very much for having me Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Tobias Churton, sorry for that delay there. Um, what you've got is... Um, what you've got is really an incredible concept. Um, 
Tobias himself, uh, himself, of course, highly educated, um, doing work and studying and writing books on another very intelligent human being, Aleister Crowley, um, and, uh, and, 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 and I, I guess if I were to have some parting, parting thoughts here, um, it would be give some meditation, give some time thinking about the comment that Tobias made regarding politics, Gnosticism and politics. How do the two thread together? Okay, now with that said, as you meditate, consider this thought. Um, what you're looking at during Crowley's time in regards to his opposition. Uh, why was there opposition? He's not hurting anybody. Uh, he's not inciting violence. Um, his sexuality is his own business. Uh, that's a opinion coming in 2020, and I would assume he would have that same opinion in 1900. However, laws change. Societal norms change. And, and what he was looking at was a... Look, if you break down the makeup of Europe in regards to countries, it was once all ruled by Rome. And let's take the neighbor to the south of the United States. Let's look at Mexico, for example. Um, and I've got to be quick here with my thoughts. Uh, we'll be bringing on uh, A. Ralph Epperson here shortly. Um, the thought is this. You've got the Spanish conquistadores uh, that push out the existing uh, population that occupied the land, known as the Native Americans. You've got Aztecs. You've got Mayans. Uh, they push them out. And in many cases, these native inhabitants were forced to conform to this new Spanish-European system that was spearheaded by Catholicism. Uh, in many ways, 